the Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome back to Just Love. Thank you for being with us this week. Um, We are looking at a variety of topics, again, from the perspective of our Catholic social teaching. Independence Day, the 4th of July is coming up, and um, a lot of freedoms are associated with that, including the freedom of religion. Um, Hopefully, we're going to have on as our guest today, Rabbi Abraham Cooper, who is the chair of the Religious Freedom. Hey, Tom, um, you know, I guess no matter what criteria, we're in the middle of summer, right? Yes, I'm sorry. Sorry. yes. We're at the well, beginning of summer. summer the beginning of summer. summer. The, all right, the okay. beginning of summer. Correct, right. So, Fessa, what are your summer plans? What do you want to achieve? If you got vacation plans, that's good. But sometimes people want to do different things during during the summer. So what are you, What what's on your summer agenda? My summer agenda is I'm going to, I, I'd like to, Monsieur, I'd like to really straighten out my apartment because uh, I... I just, uh, I, I think I've shared with some of our listeners before, I live in sort of like a very small space and my folks moved out of their home. And uh, I, I think I made a good decision in that I decided I didn't want to use, um, I didn't want to use any storage. But what I, what I did was I brought some of the stuff that was in my parents' home to my home. And it's just, it's just too much stuff. So I just think I've got to just go through listeners, it. Listeners, listeners, listeners. <laughs> Praise be Jesus. Praise be Jesus. I've known Tom for decades. Okay. Um, Let's just say stock, austere, empty, minimalist is not how you would describe Tom's (laughs) office or Tom's. Would I use words like, no, I wouldn't use words like clutter, but. But others might. Uh, Tom, do you still have the um, the the daily news uh, newspaper from your high school graduation in your office? No, I've been getting rid of those things, Monsignor. Thank goodness. I I've 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 been getting I've been getting rid of them. Thank I will so, say. So listeners, thank God. listeners, we're going to do a little bit of insider baseball here for for a while, and hope we don't bore you too much. Is one of the things is that we kind of did a little reorganizing at Catholic Charities, and we kind of did a little reorganizing of some of Tom's responsibilities in Catholic Charities. And one of that um, involved him moving his office. And uh, I'm not sure it's 100% complete yet, but part of that has to be his kind of, um, kind of, uh, dealing with some of his vintage material that he has kind of, um, you know, gathered in his office. So how is that coming, Tom? That's coming very well, Monsieur. That's why, I, as you had mentioned, all of these things I was saving, magazines and newspapers from September 11th and everything, I finally realized that's going to have no value to anybody but me. So they went in the garbage. Oh, Oh, well, Tom, did you need counseling after it? 
I no, I didn't, Monsieur. I, okay. I I I braced myself. I took it. I walked to the the recycling bin and threw it away. And I thought, and I felt better. I felt better. I did. Well, Tom, I, have to tell you, <laughs> I am proud of you for 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 that. Um, I'll tell you just a little bit myself. Is um, well, I'll talk a little bit more at the end on the trip I'm going to uh, to Israel next. Uh, uh, but I'll talk a little bit about that. But I did a little bit of kind of cleaning up to get ready for that. So anyway, but let's go on and talk about um, the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, the chair of that, Rabbi Abraham Cooper. Uh, Rabbi Cooper, thank you so much for being willing to join us on Just Love This Day. The work of the commission is very important. Thank you. Thank you for being with us, Rabbi Cooper. Thank you for having me. Let's, just for full disclosure, I live in Los Angeles, but I'm a native of Brooklyn. Yay! Yay! Yeah, and, um, and I'm and I'm still a Mets fan. Forty five years later. Well, that's uh, one of one of my good friends who was the um, who retired a little while ago of the UJA Federation in New York, John Ruskay. Um, oh, sure. But John, John um, is was a Brooklyn Dodger fan. Yeah, well, says, I, <laughs> I'm, uh, my my older brother took me to the last game of the season in September 1956, and uh, I still remember the catch that Duke Snyder made. Ah, uh, ah, uh, and uh, I think John's father took him to games out in Ebbets Field. I'm not 100 percent sure of certain of that. But he did. So uh, anyway, but uh, but we we're we're very comfortable with Mets fans. The only people we throw off the show are Boston Red Sox fans. I understand. Yeah, if they come on, somehow their mic goes mute. They don't. They they just don't come across clearly. So anyway, but uh, well, what 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 the Bible teaches us is that we need to be tolerant, but there are limits. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, and 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 um, you know, we're not quite sure, but in 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 the Christian in the gospel, <clears throat> there's talk about forgiveness of every sin except against the Holy Spirit. And I've decided <laughs> that being a Boston Red Sox fan offends the Holy Spirit. So that's I think that's where that come comes out. Uh well. There goes that zip code for this podcast. So, <laughs> That's right. Uh, so anyway, uh, so Rabbi Cooper, thank you so much. Again, for our listeners, just give them just a little bit of a brief primer on what the Commission on International Religious Freedom is. Right. So uh, very interesting. I mean, I've been with the Simon Wiesenthal Center, which is a Jewish human rights organization for 45 years since we started. And uh, I've gone to many different meetings. I've had the honor to meet numerous popes. I even met Pope Francis three times the last time in Bahrain. So uh, I I have a tendency to get around. But one of the most powerful uh, hearings I ever went to was convened by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. There were about 300 people there, activists from around the world. And uh, when I started talking about Nigeria, I I remember this moment forever. Three Nigerian uh, pastors 
jumped out of their seats and took over the meeting because they needed to finally give voice to what Christians are suffering in Nigeria. I was so moved by that experience that I actually visited Nigeria together with my friend, Reverend Johnny Moore, a couple of years later. And uh, the way this uh, it's structured is it's mandated by the U.S. Congress. We're there to look at human rights, but through the lens of religious freedom. Religious freedom is the litmus test, probably you might say, for the well-being of, of any society, whatever the political setting is. Uh, the nine commissioners, three are appointed by the president of the United States and two each by the Senate and House uh, majority minority leaders. And the most important thing, as the last of Mohegans in Washington, we are mandated to act and operate in a bipartisan fashion, which is really very healthy. So um, last year I was uh, contacted by uh, Senator McConnell and uh, asked to, uh, you know, to serve, which was uh, turned out to be quite an honor, but also a huge obligation. And briefly, right now we're looking at about 28 countries. Uh, we have about 20 uh, researchers and writers on board. Uh, the commissioners are all volunteer, uh, and they represent uh, all of the faiths in our uh, great uh, nation. And but uh, we're kind of inside outside uh, organization, meaning we're kind of gadfly. We come up with our own reports and we often disagree with the secretary of state. Our annual reports go up to the president, the members of Congress, secretary of state. And now in the world of uh, social media, we're tweeting sometimes a few times a day. So um, I could just tell you also that the Simon Wiesenthal Center, we have a long history of meeting with popes. And starting with uh, one of the greatest people, I think, of the 20th century of all time, and a lot of Grand Slam home runs, Pope John Paul II. From then to our meetings more recently with Pope Francis, from our point of view, it's important for a Jewish organization like ours to speak out for endangered Christian communities around the world. And there are many. You, Surf, has that uh, opportunity to bring focus to um, uh, the plight of religious minorities uh, all over the world, uh, both in terms of individuals, some 2,000 uh, individuals on our list of, uh, of uh, people who don't belong in jail or are only there because of, the, uh, of their faith. Uh, and um, we do interact with the various governments. Uh, we send out uh, teams when we can to actually visit some of the countries. Uh, and where, um, you know, that it's interesting to sit with uh, Mr. Blinken, Secretary of State Blinken, and give him a list of things we think he's done wrong or maybe can Im improve. So we have a bit of a bully pulpit on behalf of the American people. Uh, I'm usually, I'm used to all the 40 plus years of my work being on the outside, banging the door. Mm -hmm. So here you've got nine commissioners with one foot in and one foot out. Well, thank you so much, Rabbi Cooper, for, for that. And you, you mentioned a little bit the one foot in, the one foot out. Um, and you said your recommendations go different places. I, if I recall correctly, um, the, the commission kind of comes up with some lists of countries in which they think there are serious concerns. 
And I think it goes to the Department of State, but the Department of State doesn't necessarily have to accept all of those recommendations. And didn't that little difference just appear over India? Is my memory correct on that? Your, your memory is absolutely correct. Actually, I just got back yesterday from Washington. Okay. And, uh, uh, you know, Mr. Modi has just had, I think, a kind of a victory lap right. in Washington. You don't get to speak to both uh, houses of Congress, etc. Look, India is extremely or as, important. Or as, Rabbi, or as we would say in the Catholic faith, maybe he's working time off in purgatory. <laughs> you know, I've never used that line yet, but as an Orthodox rabbi, you can be sure I'll steal it somewhere along you the You are line. more than welcome. <laughs> Thank you. So with India, this is a perfect example. Um, you know, we have our eyes wide open. We know India, of course, now the most populous country in, in the world, an extremely important nation. And because of that, and because it's actually the world's largest democracy, when you have... Uh, uh, law, they have the, some of the right national laws on the books, but then you have the individual states or localities passing things about, uh, you know, con- anti-conversion, uh, all, all sorts of uh, litmus tests for religion that land up uh, sometimes, you know, creating a, a very negative environment, even dangerous environment for Muslims in some localities, uh, the, uh, the Christians in India. Uh, on paper, have all of the rights, but the, in truth, right now, it's a very difficult time for any religious minority. So uh, it was tough for us to come up and say, well, India should be on the CPC list. That's the con- country of particular concern, which actually is a, a, a category used by the State Department. And when we suggest it, there are rules. If they actually it's adopted, there are sanctions that you, uh, the United States would be imposing. So whether two, the two most uh, disappointing for us at this point would be India and Nigeria. And uh, we take a look at, of course, geopolitically, it's important for the United States to have its uh, flexibility. But uh, from the point of view of uh, our commission and also speaking you know, personally, uh, I remember back in the days of Soviet Jewry, when they had three million Jews trapped in the atheistic Soviet Union, uh, you know, people like Secretary of State George Shultz was able to pursue nuclear disarmament and human rights in all of his interactions with, with the Russians and to do so uh, consistently and in ways in which it linked what the other side wanted to the human dimension as well. And that's something that, uh, whether it's a Democratic president or Republican president, something that we definitely want to see. uh, an American tradition continuing. And right now, these are two countries, unfortunately, as you know, earlier this year, uh, a Roman Catholic priest was burned to death uh, in in Nigeria. Uh, In India, there are people who, you know, committed uh, rape and other crimes against uh, women, minority women, and six months later, they were out of jail. So right now, what what I'm trying to do also, both as the chairman this year of uh, you serve, but also because I've been to India before, is to basically try to share with our friends in India, let you surf come and hear everyone's narrative, including the narrative of the Hindus. If we're not there and we can't hear it, well, you can continue to expect that every year you're going to have a two or four page report you're not going to like very much. And 
And for us, why are we doing this? Is we want to bring about the change. It's not really a bully. The bully pulpit is for us Americans. The outreach is to try to uh, uh, explain and connect to the various uh, countries and officials um, why uh, religious freedom is something that should be a calling card for them. And one last point I think that's extremely important is what I found over these decades, and including and especially now, is you know China, North Korea, Vietnam. Um, those are atheistic uh, governments, and uh, they keep saying they don't believe in God, but it's interesting that I think that President Xi is afraid of God, and so the, the big guy who's running the show in North Korea, they fear God because they are projecting themselves as a God with a small g. They want everyone to look to this one leader, this one human being, as the end-all and be-all. And I think that instinctively every soul knows inside that that's just not the case, that there is a God. And somehow these are they're warring with the concept of God and with the people with the courage to try to keep the faithful uh, going and to keep faith alive. Rabbi uh, Abraham Cooper, who is the chair of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. So let me I understand. Um, you know, kind of intuitively, why there might be a resistance on the Department of State to declare India of particular uh, concern. What are some of the geopolitical dimensions regarding Nigeria? Well, that is a really good question. Um, and a lot of Americans may not know this, but Nigeria is the largest, most prosperous uh, a country in Africa. It's got all that oil. Uh, it is located in the, uh, centrally in the most uh, uh, sensitive area. That makes it a huge target for uh, terrorists and extremists of all sorts. Uh, and uh, you have uh, ISIS uh, in Africa operating not too far away. When you think of, and you have the Chinese who are very aggressive in, uh, uh, in Africa. The United States uh, understands and knows its huge investments in making sure that uh, Nigeria can continue uh, to uh, operate and to keep it safe from, uh, from the global uh, terrorism. Uh, the truth of the matter is that right now, and having been there, I'm not an expert, I only spent enough time to debrief about 90 survivors of Islamic terrorism there. Uh, on paper, Nigeria looks as strong as any democracy in the world. And it's a major country, over 200 million uh, people. Uh, but the, uh, the aggressiveness and the terrorism of some of the uh, uh, Islamic uh, groups that continue to attack uh, Christians, uh, and by the way, and some Muslims they don't like uh, either, that destabilizes the country. And uh, whenever you have a country where it's a democracy is weak, and in the case of Nigeria, it's a huge prize. Uh, and for a lot of years, uh, uh, there wasn't a lot of focus, but the Lake Chad region is nearby and all of those other countries. You don't want to talk about the domino effect, but Nigeria is a state that the United States and the United Kingdom uh, uh, cannot allow to fail. 
that's the bottom line. And the way they look at it is, uh, you know, if they have to look the other way and not come down too hard when it comes to the to the violence uh, 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 in, that affects, in this case, primarily uh, Nigerian Christians at this point, I wouldn't say they give them a complete pass, but they can be doing and should be doing much, much more uh, to make sure that all of the laws on paper are actually followed. And all of that training of police and uh, the Nigerian military are actually put to work in order to make sure that when Christmas Eve comes or Easter week comes, you don't have every single year kidnappings, violence, terrorism, and killings. Speaking with Rabbi Abraham Cooper, the chair of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. Let me ask you, um, not necessarily countrywide, but maybe <clears throat> it is country. When you look at <clears throat> the claim of international religious freedom, what are the items that the commission or you are particularly focused on of particular concern? Um, well, that's a very good question. I, I don't know that we can totally uh, say there are specifics, but so for example, this uh, uh, on the 28th of this month, we'll be having hearings on Cuba. Okay. Well, the human rights situation in Cuba has been a disaster ever since Castro took over. We're gonna call those hearings though, not in Washington, we're gonna be down in Miami. So part of what we want to do is to give voices to educate the next generation. And um, I don't think we have to go into great detail about um, those, um, uh, you know, parish priests and leaders who are just trying to do what they need to do to bring the message and the solace to their communities. Uh, it could be dangerous business. Nicaragua, in our, in our own, right? Nicaragua is probably the most right now anti uh, Catholic, but more globally, when you have laws in place that make a conversion illegal, uh, when you have laws in place, especially in the Muslim countries, anti-blasphemy laws uh, would, are an absolute uh, disaster uh, for uh, the religious minorities, including and especially uh, Christian minorities. Yeah. So l let me share with you a couple of, a couple of years ago. Uh, we had as a guest on our, our show two young women who were imprisoned, I believe, Tom, in Iran, right? For, Iran. for I think, believe, carrying Bibles, you know, and they were accused of proselytizing, conversion, et cetera, et cetera. So it is, it's something that is, I mean, is very real in, in ways. It's not just, just theoretical. You know, let me share with you one other issue um, about Cuba. I had the opportunity to visit Cuba, uh, right, actually, a month or so before the COVID closed down. I visited with, uh, with Cardinal Dolan, and we, we, were, we traveled a bit there, probably about a week. Um, but one of the things that it did strike me in meeting with some of the Catholic bishops who were there how very, very cautious they were about what they would say, because they were really concerned about crackdowns, persecution by the government 
if they were to, you know, raise their voices on any issues. And again, I, I share my own perspective being someone from the United States where, where if you got, if you got a complaint, you let people know what your complaint is. And I'm saying to myself, well, why don't they complain? And then I had to kind of reflect a little bit and say, oh, I get it why they are so very cautious. Well, yeah, I mean, when we talk about uh, uh, Cuba, which has been on, uh, you know, our CPC list for for a long time. But, you know, uh, the head of Cuba's uh, Jesuit order and the president of the Conference of Religious Men and Women in Cuba was given a choice last year. Right. Leave or leave. Right. If not, they had a nice cold seat for him and probably in some in some prison. So the intimidation factor is there. Uh, and also, you know, structurally for the Catholic Church and the Vatican, uh, they've been known to want to quote, uh, take the long view, etc. But when uh, some of us outsiders uh, take a look and, you know, whether what happened in, in Hong Kong, you know, with someone who's 90 years old, it's right. it's, um, you know, and in, when you, I was in Cuba as well for about a week. And one of the things is you never really know who you're speaking with. They want you to feel that sense of unease. And uh, for people who hold an American passport, it's so alien to our experience. But in order to try to impact on what's actually going to happen and try to find leverage, if any, uh, to ameliorate the situation, uh, I think it's important for those of us who are believers and for young people, like, you know, they sort of think religion is a multiple choice question. Um, if you go to any of these countries where to be uh, openly, even cautiously, uh, a member of a faith group, uh, where also you're basically telling the world, you put God first in your life before any human being. Well, that's basically a crime in places like China. Uh, it, it's difficult for us to fathom. And I know there's a lot of tourism in the world, and uh, Cuba is a very interesting place to go to. Uh, but uh, it is, I've always found that when I uh, have those kinds of interactions and we have hearings with people who have the courage, they're not, they're not arrogant, they have the courage, though, to try to live their lives uh, by the attendance of their faith, whatever the rules of engagement are in their society. Um, it's a very humbling and inspiring experience. Rabbi Abraham Cooper, you have been so generous with both your time, your insights, your wisdom. You've made me, and I'm sure you've made our listeners incredibly more aware and more informed about this critically topic. So thank you for your work, and thank you for joining us on Just Love today. It's Really a wonderful experience. And as a fellow New Yorker, let me offer up this uh, uh, potential gift to you. Not now in the middle of the summer, but I've heard occasionally New York still has tough winters. Why don't you come out for a couple of weeks and you could do your show from the left coast here in Southern California? Hey, Tom, we may take uh, Rabbi Cooper up on that. Absolutely. Thanks so much for being with us on Just Love. Okay. Thank you. God bless. Be well. Just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And if we all did that, our world would be more just and it would be more compassionate. You know, Tom, we were just speaking about broad topics with uh, 
with uh, Rabbi Cooper. But you know, individually, if we did take that opportunity, all billion people in the world, billions of people in the world, well, the world would be more just and it would be more compassionate. Tom, let's take a break. This is the this is just love. We're on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM one twenty nine. Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love, a weekly conversation about what's going on in the world through the perspective of our Catholic beliefs and our Catholic values. Listen, we always should begin a conversation on looking at what's going on with the facts, the reality. But what you also, what we also need to do is to bring some values, some perspectives to though that reality, because we can in many ways shape it. Oh, no, no, not always and not everything. But we are not helpless in terms of trying to move the pendulum and the arc forward in a better direction. You know, if we're going to be from our Catholic perspective, you know, we believe in this fancy word eschatology, which means, Tom, do you know what that word eschatology means? The study of the end times, Monsignor, right? Yep. You hundred okay. percent. You get a you get That's college. <laughs> you, you get a 
you get a gift card to Starbucks. There you go. Very good. Okay. So, so from the point of view of the last times, we say, you know, heaven or heaven, and we say heavenly things, and every tear will be wiped away, every veil we will see God face to face. But we also say that while that is the ultimate end time, that type of reality can be at least partially experienced on earth, never fully, but partially because we say that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. He conquered sin and death. And so the new life in Jesus is possible even now, but not fully. And depending on the day of the week, it's really, really partial sometimes (laughs) because there's a lot of injustice a lot of hate. So justice and charity aren't always complete experiences. But I don't think we should be overly cynical. I mean, we could say they never occur, but that's not true. There is so much goodness in the world also. So when we say in just love is when we look at the reality of the world around us, our Catholic values are to say The reality of the world should be more like the reality of heaven. Now, that may seem like crazy. We're on earth. We're not in heaven. No, it's not crazy. What it's saying is, if people are hating of one another here, that's not a heavenly value. And so what do we do as individuals to try to make the world a more loving place? And Let's be realistic. This is not a pipe dream. Sometimes people act better. Sometimes people act worse. So we do have the capacity to live life well, more in accord with those values. So we look at what's going on in the world, and then we say, all right, that's not a pretty good situation. So how do we make it more just? How do we make it more reflective of what one day will be for everybody. So anyway, Tom, I just went off a little bit too much. Why don't we go to our guest? Our next guest is Professor Nation Snyder, who is the assistant professor in media studies and public engagement at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Um, So Professor Snyder, thank you for joining us on Just Love. It's my pleasure. So good to be here. Good. So listen, I can see you on Zoom. Our listeners only hear your voice. Give them a little bit of your background. How'd you wind up in Colorado and how'd you wind up in your current position and your interest in cooperatives? Well, they're they're all connected, really. I used to be over where you are uh, in New York. I was a reporter. Um, I worked for lots of different magazines, including America, the Jesuits, uh, monthly magazine. And, and um, I, uh, in that work, I got really interested in, in the cooperative movement. It was something that I'd, you know, been connected to here and there. I didn't know at the time that actually it was an important part of my family history. Um, but what I was following was uh, a combination of protest movements. I had written a book about Occupy Wall Street, as well as people who were engaging with the online economy, trying to figure out how to make the Internet better and healthier. 
And I started covering as a reporter. Professor Slotted, did you figure that one out yet? Uh, I I think so. I oh. mean, I think this cooperative movement has a lot to say about that. Okay. And I saw people who are trying to do that, who are trying to use co-ops to solve problems about workers' rights and, and users' rights um, by putting those people in charge, by making them co-owners of the business. Um, and uh, this just fascinated me as I saw these younger people trying to bring this movement to life. I started having to rediscover what, where did all this come from? Who had built this movement? And actually in the process discovered uh, in a kind of backwards way that my own Catholic faith was very relevant to this. So maybe um, for some of our listeners who aren't very familiar with that and they hear the word cooperate or cooperatives and they say, oh, everybody's working together. But cooperatives in the sense we're talking about them now have a specific kind of um, meaning and a specific uh, uh, type of organization. Can you make our listeners and make me a little bit smarter in kind of giving us the 101 primer on what is a cooperative? What does that mean? Yeah, absolutely. A co- cooperatives are, on the one hand, it's a it's a global movement, a, a way of doing business that has been around as long as investor-owned companies um, and traces its origins back much further. You could go back to the Book of Acts. You could look at you know medieval monasteries. But in its modern form, it's a form of corporate structure that um, that involves co-ownership, not by people trying to profit from the business, not just by a few people in the business, but generally by a, a large class of participants. And that could be the workers who, who work at the business, or it could be consumers who shop at the business, or it could be actually a cluster of businesses that are all using a shared uh, cooperative to, to do something together. One way or another, it's people who are using it, being the owners and having governance rights. And so it's a little democracy in the end. Um, so, and, so and Professor Snyder, that, that, that was a really nice um, kind of description from my perspective, but maybe could you give our, um, our, our listeners some little concrete examples. So like a one example of a worker cooperative, another of a consumer cooperative, another of maybe a business cooperative. So they could put a little bit of concrete on the uh, on the concepts that you just articulated so well. Yeah, absolutely. So for instance, you know, I, I'll say a little bit about Colorado while I while I do that. Um, you know, my my family members landed there in New York in the early 20th century, and they get shipped off from the docks at Ellis Island uh, uh, to Colorado to farm beets. The company that that brought them there turns out some years later, it became a producer cooperative, which meant that it was a bunch of farmers farming beets. I still have family members doing that and who are still members. They bring their beets together at a, a a single place for processing that they co-own and govern. So they're in charge of the place that they process beets. Another example here in Colorado, we've got a solar panel installer here in, in, in the Boulder area where I live um, called Namaste Solar. And it's uh, a solar panel installer that is owned by the people who work there, about 200 people uh, uh, working there. And so the profits from the business go out to those 
uh, to those workers. A consumer cooperative would look something like, you know, for instance, a cooperative grocery store that might buy beets from uh, the, the farmer and install the solar panels on the roof. Um, uh, but in this case, it's the people who shop there. Uh, so back in New York, for instance, the Park Slope Food Co-op is a famous example of that. In that case, the, the shoppers even work there. Uh, so they they have to do shifts. My wife actually met her current boss cutting cheese in the basement of the Park Slope Food Co-op. Wow. So it becomes a, a community as well as a business. So um, so what's your assessment? Are are kind of is the cooperative movement growing? Is it successful? Give us a broader sense. What's going on there? Well, I think it's a really important movement right now, um, and it's something that a lot of young people are really interested in uh, uh, building on because it addresses so many of the things that are deeply frustrating. At the same time, the movement is in many ways constrained. Back in the 30s, a bunch of legislation was passed uh, dur during the New Deal in particular that enabled cooperatives to, to, to really transform America through credit unions, through rural electric cooperatives, and much more. But a lot of that legislation is not actually working to enable the kinds of cooperatives around things like tech, around things like housing that people are really clamoring for. So while there's a lot of vibrancy in the um, at, at the grassroots, we don't really have the capacity to scale in the way we need this movement to scale right now. And that's a big focus of my work now. How can we change some of our policies so that the things that are calling out in people's hearts, the things that people want to be able to do, uh, uh, are actually really possible and scalable in, in this economy? We're speaking with Professor Nathan Snyder, who is in media studies, public engagement at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Um, we're around the time of International Day of Cooperatives, and we're speaking about the cooperative movement and some examples of that. So you just kind of moved into an area that, you know, I have a particular, my ears perked up when you said, you know, we need some new legislation, we need some new policies to do that. And then you talked about a little bit before about how it could impact social media and things like that. So focus focus our listeners a little bit on that part of the conversation. On the policy. So this is something we've always had to do. Um, okay. You know, for instance, back in, you know, about a century ago, Alphonse Desjardins, who was a, a journalist in Quebec, got his parish together uh, to pool money and create really the first modern North American credit union. Um, that was an early experiment. But to get that to scale, it required um, people like Edward Filene in the U.S., to um, who is a, a department store magnate, to take up the idea and to push it, push it through Congress so it could really scale. Um, and so that the federal government would in, create the kind of enabling conditions that any kind of economic practice needs, just like investors have stock markets and all kinds of that uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, all kinds of infrastructure to enable them to do big things. Um, cooperative financing needs that too. Um, and, you know, it should be easy for people trying to do things as communities to do things just like investors can do right now. Uh, uh, for instance, we not um, uh, the the um, the Small Business Administration, which is the major backer for early stage businesses in the U.S., currently does not even lend 
uh, or allow support for lending to cooperatives. This is something Congress has even tried to change and the SBA still has not approved it. So there are some basic, basic barriers. Uh, a bill called the Capital for Cooperatives Act uh, introduced by our congressional delegation uh, here in Colorado has set hey, out to change. Congratulations, you did some good lobbying, lobbying in your own backyard. I can't take too much credit for that, uh, but I'm very proud of what we're doing in here in Colorado. Our governor's all about this stuff. Um, we're, we've got a lot of really good work going on here. So, so this is just one of the epicenters. I'm really lucky to be here as a result, but there's also a lot of good work happening there in New York and around the country. So how would kind of a cooperative adventure or something, how could that possibly, uh, how would that impact social media on on this side you know we have over and over this sense of betrayal that people experience um, right where a company grows it gets venture capital financing it's giving away all kinds of goodies for free um, it gets big it becomes part of our lives and then the inventor the investors you know want their profits back and so they um, you know increasingly start turning on their users in one way or another right this week um, uh, this month we've had uh, a strike at Reddit uh, where users have been turning on the company as the company's changing policies and clamping down um, and you know what we need over and over is social media that is really designed for the public square that is really designed for the people who use it and, um, you know, for instance, at a small scale, I've had the experience of co-founding a small social media network that's part of a larger uh, project. It's called social.coop. It's in the, uh, it uses the Mastodon platform. And it really gives you a very different experience of social media, much more human scaled, uh, much more accountable. We're making decisions about how we moderate it together. Um, these kinds of things are possible um, and they've happened. Um, but over and over, what we have is investor capture because we have an economy built around supporting investor ownership and really deeply constraining the possibilities of consumer ownership and, and other kinds of, of cooperative ownership. So, uh, Professor Snyder, we've had, a get, we've had guests in the past on our show that have spoken about the gig economy. Is there any relationship? Is there any way that the cooperative movement and the gig cooperative crosswalk, or is there any relationship there? Absolutely. And that was really where I started in my interest in this uh, sort of thing. So we have, um, uh, I, I started noticing people as the gig economy was taking off who are building platforms that would actually be owned and governed by the workers. So an example of this is Stocksy United, uh, which is in Canada, which is a stock photo platform owned by photographers. Um, another example there in New York is Drivers Cooperative, which is a Uber-like uh, rideshare service that's owned by the drivers. We're actually now deploying um, a version of that here in Denver. Um, and 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 there are examples all over the world where people are trying to counteract uh, the uh, the the investor-owned gig economy that's squeezing workers um, with platforms that are actually owned by workers. Up and Go is a house cleaning uh, app there in New York that um, that is owned by the house cleaners, um, and this really changes the deal for these workers. The problem, once again, though. However well it works for the workers is that we cannot access the capital that we need to really compete and shift these markets because those investor-backed platforms have such tremendous advantages in the current economy. 
So, I, I mean, I think, let me put words in your mouth. Would you say one of the major obstacles in growing the cooperative movement is the lack of access to capital? It's a huge part of it. And anything trying to scale, um, trying to participate in the real economy today needs some kind of access to, to significant capital. At the same time, there are other pieces to the picture too. It's, there's also a cultural piece. And one of the things that has really moved me in my research on the history of this movement is the recognition that culture, and, and in many cases, um, uh, Catholic cultures have been instrumental in getting a start on these movements in um, building out of churches, out of parishes, out of communities of faith, um, the kind of uh, jumpstart that these projects need in order to demonstrate their viability and get that that capital that they need to grow. This is what happened with the credit uh, credit union movement. It's what happened with um, uh, the largest worker cooperative network in the world, the Mondragon um, uh, Corporation in the Basque region of Spain. Um, these are outgrowths, not just of of a form of business, not just you know clever. Um, uh, economics, but actually a spirituality that has achieved things that that um, economics alone, I think, has not been able to achieve. So I think you need both. So, I mean, if if I recall that starting a business is pretty challenging and, and that there's a high percentage of failure in small businesses, they just don't succeed. What's the success failure rate of new co-ops? Uh, generally, co-ops have a significantly lower failure rate than other kinds of businesses, um, just because they have that resilience built in from um, having a, a, a widespread membership base. At the same time, they may be harder to create. And um, one thing that I've been um, exploring in the last few years is a, a, a model, a concept, a kind of story that I call exit to community, which is a recognition that sometimes early stage businesses are very risky and it doesn't make sense to do shared ownership. But what if we had a trajectory where right now, uh, uh, instead of we're instead of um, uh, exiting to investor ownership, uh, which is the trajectory that a lot of startups have to uh, go on in order to succeed. Um, we had uh, pathways available where startups, once they once they do show some viability, um, do gather a community around them, can actually exit to ownership by that community, um, so that the cooperative becomes, in some ways, a kind of destination rather than um, just a starting point. In the past, a lot of co-ops have been like cookie cutter replicas of each other. There are all kinds of stories here, but I think we need new pathways. Yeah. Professor Snyder, so suppose some of our listeners say, you know, I like that idea. I, you know, he mentioned um, there's a cleaning company that is a cooperative. If, if somebody said, hey, wait a minute, I like that. I want to do more business. I want to buy my stuff. I want to do more business with cooperatives. Is there a directory of cooperatives in the country if I wanted to um, kind of do my business with them? Yeah, you can look at, for instance, the website of the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives. Uh, they have a directory. There's also one at the um, 
uh, at the National Cooperative Business Association uh, website. That's another. None of these is really complete. I've also created some directories in my own day, uh, but it's... um, uh, uh, we're, we're starting to get better data, for instance, from the U.S. Census about uh, about the cooperatives that are out there. But look around, um, ask around, uh, uh, and um, and you know, search yeah. out this model. Thank you so much, Tom. We'll put some of those, that information up on our website so people can follow it. Professor Snyder, thank you so much for being with us on Just Love. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. This is the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love, our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world. Tom, I am intrigued by cooperatives, and I think uh, Professor Snyder was pretty pretty, kind of realistic in talking about the importance of them, but the challenges that they face in going to scale. 
Mm -hmm. And I think that some of those very, very positive things um, are good, even if they don't go to scale, Mm -hmm. because they remind us of a different perspective. And while maybe they don't go all the way, if other types of businesses or other type of adventures um, kind of at least incorporated some of it, it would be better. It wouldn't be the whole the whole thing. So, Tom, I really I, I let's put those things up there because I'm mm-hmm. intrigued. You know, I would go out of my way to um, use a cooperative if one could, in order to you know do what one needed to do. I, I mean, I'll give you another example. I remember many many years ago when there was real issues of how drivers in some of the car services were being treated. But there was one car service that did have a union. They received fair wages. They got benefits. So I decided that that would, I don't use it much, but I would use that because it struck me as something very valuable that we should do. So let's make sure we put that up there. Will do, Mr. Thank you for joining us on Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Join us next week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.